All right. Thanks, guys, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, and welcome back maybe to many of you who've been uh, gone for the pandemic or summer things or things like that, too. But as Spence said, uh, this is uh, kind of a kickoff uh, fall Sunday for us as a church, like it is for many churches, uh, being uh, kids back in school and stuff and um, rhythms uh, somewhat back to normal, though 2020 is kind of weird, as, uh, as uh, Spence was saying as well, um, and as we all know. But um, we are going to, kind of in light of all of that, uh, as we normally do on this Sunday in the fall, not always, but mostly in, in January as well, uh, take a day to talk about our vision a, as a church. And if there's ever a time to do it, uh, it, to pause and to talk about who we are as a community, it's, it's definitely now. Uh, we've been doing this, of course, throughout the pandemic, but we wanted to give an extra sermon over to it here in the fall. Before we move on to a, uh, a larger series in the book of 2 Corinthians, which we're going to start next week, so for those of you that have been wanting to know where we're going, I think I mentioned that last week or week before or whatever, but uh, if you didn't hear that, that's our next uh, plan, preaching-wise, is to preach through 2 Corinthians, which will take us through most of the school year. That's a 13-chapter book. If you have time this week to read through it or part of it, I encourage you to do that. Uh, for some of you, maybe you've never read it before, uh, it's one of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote to, uh, to the church in Corinth. It's a great little book that we're looking forward to diving into deep um, to explore the depths of the gospel in, uh, in, uh, in, into more ways uh, this next year together. So that's our next plan. But let me just start today uh, by, by acknowledging kind of this obvious thing. Uh, I've been talking to our leaders about this, and they've also been hearing this too. Some of you probably have been hearing this, but these are obviously uh, trying times, to say the least, for churches. They are like they are for everyone else, including uh, individual Christians. Um, but it's believed that one in five churches in America will close during the next 12 to 18 months, if they haven't already, uh, due to pandemic-related things. Barner Research also shows that 32% of, quote, practicing Christians have stopped attending church altogether during the pandemic. 32%. That includes online attendance. So even if a third of that number is true, that is extremely disconcerting. Add on top of this political tensions, civil unrest, and disagreements over how much Christians should speak to and get involved in different levels of political or social discourse. And again, churches are going through a tough time, a time of testing uh, internally and externally. But like a lot of things as Christians, we, we look at stuff like this and times like this and say simultaneously, the devil is clearly at work. And yet, God is at work using for good what the devil intends for evil. That, that is, good sprouting up from intended evil is how Christians view the world. It is one of the main filters by which we view the world because that's the center of what happened on the cross when Jesus died for our sins. Intended evil by man and by the devil uh, being intended by God for the greatest of goods, the salvation of sinners like us. And so, We've been talking a lot this past spring and summer then about not giving in to fear, about worshiping King Jesus and not putting our hope in politicians or vaccines, seeking unity with other Christians in a time of cultural upheaval, and centralizing the gospel even over other good things. And always remember that. The devil will use both evil and goodness to entice you away from Jesus. I've personally seen people leave Christianity over sexual sin, but also a simple desire to put their kids first. Over robust idolatry, 
but also putting a social cause just a little bit above the death and resurrection of Jesus as being the thing that eventually led them away from him. We need to be on guard. Demonic attack in your life could take the shape of a noble cause. He masquerades, the devil does, as an angel of light, the Bible says. And so we shouldn't expect his attacks to always look dark, uh, but many times uh, as kind of a full light to lead us away from the true light. A good sign on Hiawatha's side of things is in spite of all that's happened since mid-March, our vision has not changed as a church, not even in the slightest, nor did we ever feel the inkling for it to. And this says a lot about our vision uh, itself, which is not really our vision, it's God's vision, uh, but it says a lot about the vision itself, and that is that it was big enough and God-centered enough for it to bear the brunt of all the waves of change that we've been experiencing and here's our actual vision, by the way, too, if you haven't heard this before, and just by way of reminder for many of you. It's to glorify God by spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ through word and deed among our church and out to our city and beyond. So I just want you guys to know that, that's, uh, that we say this a lot here, and we say it kind of without saying it, too. We imply it a lot in, in how we talk and sing and teach and preach here. That's what gets us up in the morning. That's what makes us tick. That's what we think about. We go to sleep at night thinking about, wake up thinking about uh, as leaders here. Uh, a lot of you uh, share in this. You've kind of signed on to help propagate this vision here in our, in our church and in our city. And a lot of you have it, and that's okay too. Some of you aren't Christians yet, and that's great. We're glad you're here. But just so you know, this is what we're about. This is what we want to be doing as a church. And every decision we make and every meal we eat, every sermon we preach, every song we sing, every decision we, we make uh, as leaders, we want to somehow um, want, want this to resonate in it. A couple of years ago, I, I preached a sermon here called Our Vision is Jesus in an attempt to simplify uh, the vision even more. So for clarity, I want to do that again today uh, with you guys. I, I want to spend some time looking at this idea as Jesus Christ himself being our vision, like that famous hymn uh, kind of starts out as saying, Be thou my vision, O, o Lord of my heart. And so uh, for us then as a church, uh, what, what defines our existence, much more than a catchy vision statement, is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is not uh, a relic for us. We, we really, really, really love him here. He's not a relic. He's not an ideology. He's a living person, God in the flesh, who bled and died for us. And so we believe he loves us more than we love him, as the Bible teaches. And so if you're wrestling with feelings of apathy toward God, or maybe you're not a Christian yet, you are in good company. We are all sinners saved by the love that God showed us at the cross that Spencer just read from, from Romans 5. And we're all in the process of being wrecked and then remade by that love. And so what I want to do today is, um, is talk more about this idea of our vision being Jesus. I want, to, I want to read from a section of Matthew's Gospel that helps us understand the all-surpassing worth of Jesus himself, and then to show how this idea relates to both daily Christian living as well as our church's philosophy of ministry. And so wherever you're at, whether you're asking questions about who we are as a church or who Jesus is, we'll try to cover a lot of those bases. Certainly both bases will be covered, but we're going to cover a lot of other bases as well that relate to those things today, hopefully, on the time that we have. Matthew 26, 6-16. to If you want to turn in a phone app or a Bible you have, that'd be great. But otherwise, follow along on screen with me here. 
as we read it in full to begin. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. All right, just to recap this. uh, So this is uh, just hours really before Jesus' arrest and trial and death. Jesus is staying in a house in Bethany, which is a small town outside of Jerusalem. A woman who's not named here, but we know from other accounts in the New Testament that this is Mary, the sister to Martha and Lazarus. Mary comes and pours very expensive oil or ointments on his head, which is a relatively customary expression of hospitality during the day, but just not this much of it. This is very expensive. It was basically a year's worth of wages, so whatever that ends up being. Think about $70,000 worth of ointment just poured out in an instant on someone's head. Uh, And so uh, she does that, but the disciples were, it says, indignant over it. And and it was, they were saying that there's a better way to spend the money, like giving it to the poor. But Jesus responds with, there was no better way. She has done a beautiful thing, preparing my body for burial. This incites Judas then to go out to betray Jesus by giving up his location, the Jewish authorities. All right, so. What I want to do today is look at this passage from three angles, and I'll just say what they are to begin, um, and then we'll come back. But I want to look at the gospel of Jesus' death. I want to uh, talk about the priority of Jesus' death, and then we'll end with the uh, horrific beauty of Jesus' death as well. All right, so let's go back and look at the first, uh, actually a middle couple of verses here in verse 12 and and 13. The gospel of Jesus' death. So this is maybe not something that Mary was thinking when she poured out the ointment. So when Jesus says that uh, she did a beautiful thing and, and she prepared my body for burial when she did it, this is probably not something Mary is thinking when she's doing this. Uh, but Jesus doesn't wait for her to connect the dots. He just flat out says it. She has done this in order to prepare me for burial. Note the phrase, this gospel uh, this is important. It has a very definite bent to it, right? As opposed to the gospel or a gospel, which would have a more indefinite bent to it. But here, the, the pronoun this points to the immediate actions of Mary and the significance of his burial. So the gospel is, according to Jesus here, the gospel is the good news that Jesus was crucified and buried for us. He also says here uh, that the gospel is something we proclaim. He says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, what Mary has done will be told in in memory of her. So this this reminds us of something very important, that the gospel is something we talk about more than do. 
This is a big part of our vision as a church here as well. Not just how we read the Bible, but in how we live and how we act. The gospel is an event in history that has already happened. And that present day has bearing or power in the world and in our lives as well through the Spirit. So it affects and changes us, but it in essence is not something that we do, but something that Christ did. He was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised again. And something the Spirit does in unifying us to Jesus and convicting us of sin and making the gospel precious and beautiful to us. And Jesus says here that when the gospel is proclaimed, we will sometimes talk about Mary just like we're doing today. So there's, there's a prophetic bent to this, right? He's saying not knowing that the letters would be written in this capacity at that point. The, the disciples didn't, but Jesus did. But him knowing that they would be is saying that Mary would be remembered for this. Not just as an act of devotion, but as a gospel embodying act here as well. And in a way that contrasts with the disciples' faux religious piousness. And so it's not just what she does, but it's what she doesn't do that helps us understand the true nature of, of the gospel. But just to start here, note that the idea that Christ is saying this gospel, that, that she is helping us to understand the gospel in my burial, my, my impending death, my eventual burial, and three days later, my vindicating resurrection, that this is good news. Good news is coming to the world but it's wrapped up in my suffering. It's wrapped up in me giving myself over to sinners like uh, this woman, Mary, like these disciples, like Judas, like us. He's come to die for our sins. That's the gospel. And it's proclaimed then, not so much acted out. The second layer to this is to look at the priority of Jesus' death. We'll spend most of our time here. Let me read verses 8 and following again. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Again, tens upon tens of thousands of dollars could have been acquired and given to the poor. Or something could have been done with that money. Something very spiritual. Something very religious. Verse 10, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. All right, so this is something that uh, we might be inclined, if you've read this before, or if you're just hearing this for the first time, something that we might be inclined to put in the unmentionable things that Jesus said bucket, or maybe the he said what uh, category of, of teaching. That is, until we truly understand the gospel or our hopeless depravity and the necessity of his grace uh, to be saved. But Let's go back, though, and just clarify what Jesus is not saying first. Jesus is not saying that we should draw a thick black line between Christian spirituality and the practice of giving to the poor, as if they never intersect. He doesn't say that here, right? In fact, he implies the opposite when he says, you will always have the poor. And we could mention passages like Galatians 2.10, where it says that the early Christians were eager to give to the poor. Or 2 Corinthians 8, where it ties giving to poorer Christians with how Christ gave to spiritually poor sinners when he died on the cross for our sins. Because we're impoverished in the fact that we're distanced from him. Keep that in mind, actually, for later on in, in the sermon. So, but it's important to start there and to look at what is Jesus not saying first? He's not drawing that thick black line. 
But let's not bury the lead here either. Jesus says, I am more important than ministry to the poor. My death and burial are more central to my mission than you, disciples, giving to the poor. There is a clear, unavoidable hierarchy here. There's a better and there's a lesser. This is actually a very common occurrence in Jesus' life and ministry. If you've read the Gospels before, uh, you, you may even be thinking about some of these things. This, this playing out of this uh, story, this interaction, this kind of almost offensive exchange between Jesus and people who think they know better. But it usually takes place with Jesus meeting with a diverse group of people and one person is centralizing Jesus and others get on that person's case for not doing something else they deem more spiritual or important. Here's a couple of examples. When the Pharisees get upset with the disciples for not fasting from food when they were with Jesus who is greater than fasting. So again, the disciples in that moment are centralizing Jesus and other religious individuals get on their case. Why aren't you fasting? Well, we're with the bread of life. And he's better than fasting from food. And, and the essence of Christian spirituality is not fasting, but being with Jesus and believing in him. And they don't connect those dots at that point in the story, as many of you know. But that's, those are the dots to later connect that the Bible makes. Or think about this. When Martha got upset with Mary, the same Mary, by the way, in today's passage, when Martha, her sister, got upset with her for just sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke 10, when there was much service to be done for Jesus, many preparations to be made for showing hospitality, and then Jesus responds. You remember this story? He responds to Martha and says, get off Mary's case. I mean, Mary's constantly being like harped on for just being with Jesus, constantly throughout her life. He's just centralizing Jesus, and people are indignant. They have no category for it. And Jesus is always defending her. In this case, he says to Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion. It's a very gracious thing for Martha to hear as well, but Mary has chosen the good portion. It's right to not be doing anything right now except listening to me and being with me. Or again today in Matthew 26, again, the disciples are getting indignant. They're getting upset with the woman, with Mary, for wasting the ointment on Jesus when it could have been used for other good spiritual things. This is a very common occurrence in the Gospels, and it just so happens that Matthew 26 is the last of these occurrences, but there are many in the Gospels. Jesus defends Mary. He says to the men, he says to the disciples, back off, lay off her. What she's doing is right. She's doing a beautiful thing. He defends her for centralizing him. So here's one thing that we learn in this passage. We are all really good at replacing Jesus with good things. We are all really good at replacing Jesus with good things, Christian or not. We all do it. We make Jesus more into a rabbi than the Son of God, but Jesus will have none of it. I mean, think about it this way. If Jesus' mission was to help the physically poor, to work for justice in that way, if that was his main mode of operation, his main MO, then this moment in Matthew 26 in Simon's house would have been the perfect opportunity for him to say so, right? It's like the, 
balls teed up on the tallest of tees, saying it's like the perfect object lesson is like right here. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't say, the disciples are right, Mary. Don't pour it out on me. The ointment must be saved and given to others. Don't pour it out. Don't waste it. If Jesus were just a good man teaching us how to live, that's what he would have said. But he's not just a man. He's the Son of God who came to die for us. Do you see the difference? Vision-wise, as a church, this is extremely significant. Many churches uh, succumb to replacing Jesus with good things or blending Jesus with good things, which would be to say that the gospel and giving to the poor are basically synonymous. But Jesus himself clearly did not think that. The gospel is not combating sex trafficking. The gospel is not working for racial reconciliation. The gospel is not giving to the poor. The gospel is not fasting from food. The gospel is not even the idea of serving Jesus. Nor is it love God, love people. That's not the gospel either. Those can be good things and Christians do them and and to actively oppose any of those things would be wrong, but they're not the center. Non-Christians do some of those things. So what makes us distinct as Christians? What makes us distinct is that we believe in an empty tomb. What makes us distinct is that we centralize something other than those things. We centralize Jesus' death and burial and his vindicating resurrection three days later. We centralize the forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus is getting at here hours before his arrest. He's being anointed. We centralize the salvation of spiritually poor people and the fact that the problem is first and foremost in here, not out there. That's a big thing that not all Christians actually agree agree, agree on, but it's important to understand this and at least to understand for clarity's sake where we're coming at from coming from as a church. That we believe our first and foremost problem is inside here. It's not out there. See how that affects the mission? It affects where you go for help. It affects how you would address the problem as you see it every day. Where do you go? What do we think? What do we do? What do we sing? What do we read? What do we apply to our heart by faith? It affects everything. And it actually changes how we view this passage because it, it moves us from a, wait a minute, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he not caring for the poor here? Because technically, Poor people in that moment went without for the sake of what Jesus said. So, but it moves us from why is Jesus not caring for the poor to a, wait a minute, I've been looking at this whole thing upside down. This happens a lot when you read the Bible, when you're reading and all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait a minute, it's actually upside down. I was looking at it completely wrong. And it flips around and we say, Jesus is caring for the poor here. He's just doing it by making a beeline to the cross where he provides the money and riches of his grace to spiritually poor people like you and me and like Mary and like the disciples and like Judas. 
I just didn't realize what poverty actually meant. I thought it had to do with money. But it actually has to do with sin and not being with God. That's what it means to be poor. And so if that's the case, then Jesus actually is going to bat for poor people. He's just doing it on a much higher level because our greatest need is not money. It's not stuff. It's not food. It's the bread and the, the blood of his body and uh, wine of his body and blood. It's him. And yes, this will offend people, right? Just like Jesus' words were offensive here to the disciples and especially to Judas, who at this point went out to betray him. This was like the trigger. This is yet another instance where the Bible says to us, it's not about you. It's yet another instance where we're faced with this offensive but freeing message of it's not about what you do. It's not about you at all. And this is why as a church we'll always be unashamedly disproportionate in how we talk about the gospel versus social good. This is why. This is precisely why. Because of Jesus. Because Jesus did this on multiple occasions in his pre-cross ministry. He wasn't anti-good. He just placed himself above our notion of good because sinners don't need goodness. Instead, we need his body to be torn to shreds for us on that cross in our place. In fact, let's read the last few verses here to help uh, drive, drive that point home. The horrific beauty of Jesus' death. Let's read verses 14 and, and 15 and 16 again. Then one of the twelve, one of Jesus' twelve disciples, closest friends and confidants, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. All right, so, so here we are, right? This is the thing, as I said before, that, that triggers Judas. It pushes him over the edge. He loved money. We know that from other passages in the Bible, which says it more explicitly, but he loved money. And he clearly misunderstands Jesus' mission. This is disillusionment gone awry, you could say. And again, it's, it's offense taken at the idea that it's not the works of our hands or the money we make or the things we earn or the good we do that saves us. I mean, Jesus here in this exchange with Mary and the disciples, he straight up replaces with his body an opportunity for the disciples to do good with their hands. Do you guys see that? He's replacing with his body an opportunity for the disciples to do good with money they could acquire with that, with that ointment or that oil. He's replacing the opportunity to do good with himself in that moment. This is offensive, and for Judas, it's triggering. The money we make, and this is something that's not talked about a lot and should be more. The reason why money, which money in itself is not evil. The love of money is, the Bible says, but the reason why money is such a, a trip up sometimes in our pursuit of Christ and our spiritual journeys is that it is an expression of what we accomplish with the works of our hands. It's something we, we literally earn it by working. And if we have so much money 
That idea can be wedded to the idea that it kind of is about what I do. It kind of is about something that I've accomplished or done. This is why Jesus says it's really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom because rich people think they've done good. They think they've earned. They think they've accomplished. They've built the tower. They've climbed the ladder. They're smart. They're creative. They're innovative. No one can tell them they can't do anything. And of course, poor people can wrestle with this as well, but it's harder for the rich. The rich can be saved. They're they're saved every day. And Jesus actually says in that passage in Mark 10, some of you guys know it, that it's not impossible for God. What's impossible for man is possible with God. So God can do it. But the problem with money is it's having it, acquiring it, working for it, is that it can entice us into believing that it's by works we're saved, not grace. This is Judas's problem at the core. This is what's under the covers or the layer or behind the curtain of loving money. He loved himself. 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave in the Bible. It was the price to be paid, quote, when your ox gores a slave to death. From, this is from Exodus 21.32. You guys know we talk here a lot about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament law. Well, this is one of them. Jesus fulfills this. He completes it. The Bible isn't condoning slavery here. It's putting things in place for Jesus later to fulfill. This is what God is doing in the Old Testament. He's casting shadows of his son's future advent into history so Jesus would later come and complete them. This is not a law for Christians anymore, obviously. We don't talk about this, but we should talk about it in the sense that Jesus fulfills it, completes it, as if it were a prophecy about him. And here's what I mean. There's a referential relationship between this and Matthew 26. The Son of God is being treated as a slave for us. Rejected by one of his best friends, treated like a criminal, taunted by dark angels, separated from his father, hung in excruciating pain on a cross, all that so you could be forgiven from your sins. That's the gospel. All so that your and my sin debt would be paid. That is, if we trust in him. And like Mary with the ointment, we must pour our deepest affections and faith over Jesus. And we give up the treasure of what we've earned with the works of our hands because he is our greatest treasure. Him. His body. Not something he taught or just something he did in his pre-cross ministry, as great as those are, but him, his actual body, given for you and me. Like when we take communion, we don't talk about you know, eating some of Jesus' teachings. We actually eat his body, actually drink his blood. This is what we're doing, right? There's a, there's a difference between those two things. So like Mary with the ointment, this is what we must do. We must pour our deepest affections over Jesus and give up the treasure of what we've earned with the works of our hands. Because again, we believe Jesus is our greatest treasure. He's given for you and me. And when we do this, even though others might sneer 
at our simple Jesus-only spirituality like they sneered at Mary, like they sneered at the disciples earlier with the whole fasting incident, even though others might sneer at us for our simple Jesus-only spirituality, Jesus says we do a beautiful thing. And he defends us. So let me end by, by saying it this way. There will always be good for us to do. Always. But have we poured the ointment of our affections and faith over Christ crucified alone? Or are we saving some of it to pour over the idol of our good works just in case? Ask yourself that question. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years and you're strong in the faith right now or you're not a Christian somewhere between all of you. Ask that question. Have you done this? Are Mary's actions indicative of your spirituality? Maybe ask it that way. Can you honestly say Mary's actions are, in, if, if it is, wonderful? If not, this is an invitation to change the way you think, to change what you viewed Christianity as when you walked in this room this morning, to change. Jesus is wanting you to change, and, and any of us, all of us, to constantly be reorienting ourselves to Christ crucified alone. Does Jesus truly have your heart? All of it. I think in Matthew 26, um, and vision stuff aside, it's important to talk about vision, uh, visions of churches and all of that. All that aside, here's what I think Jesus is wanting us to hear today in Matthew 26. He's calling out to us saying, come to me like Mary did, Come to me like the misguided disciples did later and learn what's most important. Take up and drink from the fountain of my blood and forever centralize my death, which takes away your sins, your wrongdoings, your disbeliefs. It remedies the distance that's between you and your creator. Not all things carry equal beauty. If you leave with something, maybe think about that in relation to what you see here on the screen. Not all things carry equal beauty. Not all things are equally beautiful. We believe here that Jesus himself and what's happening here when he dies on the cross for our sins, that is more beautiful than our acts of piety. Us giving to the poor is a beautiful thing. Jesus here giving to us spiritually poor sinners, or as 2 Corinthians 8 says, for your sake Jesus became poor there on the cross so that through his poverty there when he's dying for us, we might become spiritually rich. See, for us here, we, we are unashamedly all in on that being more beautiful, always being more beautiful than any of our acts of, of piety. There is a disproportionate relationship between the two. The former is good and beautiful. The latter here, much more beautiful. And it should be for you. If it's not, this is an invitation to change and to actually be distinctly Christian in how you act and live and sing and centralize and know what's most important and and hear him call out to you through text like this saying, are you more like the disciples, just wanting to do more 
good in the world, thinking, even in Christ's name, to do more, to give, to care, or have we actually done, are we actually like Mary in completely pouring everything out, saying, everything I've earned, I'm giving to you. Everything I've ever done, it's yours. You know, notice Mary here doesn't hold up the, the ointment saying, Jesus, look what I've earned. I worked for this. I acquired this. Now will you, will you dine with me? Will you reward me? Will you let me follow you closer? She pours it out. Like Paul says in Philippians 3, right? That nothing, everything good I've done, I consider trash for the sake of knowing Jesus. All the good things, all the laws I've kept, everything, I consider garbage, refuse for the sake of just knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. The gospel. See, he's forsaken the evil and all the good for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ and and knowing the fact that he's raised from the dead. Sharing in his sufferings, he says in Philippians 3, and, uh, and pursuing the reward of simply knowing him and having eternal life in him. So, wherever you guys are, uh, and, and I'll, end, I'll just end with this just to say um, that this is, this is very important to us as a church. Some of you um, don't share this yet. Some of you are... Um, not even sure what just happened here, and that's great. That's fine. Uh, you don't have to agree to be here and to join us and to have friendships here and be in community, but we do value clarity here. We value good Bible teaching. We value Jesus himself. Above all, he's our vision, but clarity in, in, in that we want you all to know how we think and why we do the things the way that we do and how we read, why we read the Bible the way that we do. It's not something we're making up. This comes from it itself. Um, we want you to know, um, as it pertains to our vision, um, more, more about this. And so it's invitation for alignment, an invitation into this, if that's what God is calling you, to membership maybe, to more involvement, to helping us as leaders uh, propagate this idea, this gospel among ourselves then as we share the gospel out to our city, to more people need to hear this. We're an evangelistic church. We don't talk about ideas alone. We, we want to bring them uh, for the sake of saving more people, whether they're here or whether they're, um, they're uh, in, just elsewhere. We want to bring this gospel to more people. And so um, let me pray for us, though. We'll sing one more song to close uh, before we wrap it up here. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel in this passage. This is, this is a beautiful but difficult teaching, uh, but thank you that you said it. Thank you, Jesus, that you not only had this exchange with Mary, but you were, you were careful to say that this particular exchange with Mary, what Mary did and how you responded, would always be talked about, would always be proclaimed. Wherever the gospel would be talked about, wherever Matthew's gospel would be read, wherever the gospel would be proclaimed and and so forth, that event, that exchange would be told in memory of her uh, and also just for clarity about what the kingdom of God really is and who we are and what it means to be saved and, and who you were, Jesus, especially when you came. Not a man, because good men don't say, pour that expensive oil over me and don't give it to the poor. But the Son of God does. He, it's good for God to say that. It's good for him to be our all-encompassing reality and they're all surpassing worth uh, so 
God, I pray for myself and for everyone here, wherever they are spiritually, especially for those who call Hiawatha home, that you would make us more of a pure church, that you would help us to um, have a proper hierarchy uh, when it comes to understanding um, Christianity, belief versus doing, uh, you, Jesus, versus um, acts of piety. Uh, Father, I pray that you would save more in our midst and beyond, uh, God. But thank you, Jesus, for becoming a slave on that cross. Though you were the richest, you were the epitome of not being a slave. You, you became mistreated, you became devalued uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross, for people like us. What amazing love that is. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I, I pray that that would become, you would just, Spirit, cause that to be more beautiful. Uh, I'll just say right off the, it's, it's true for me anyway, probably for everyone here, that's not as beautiful as it could be to, to me. And so please make that more beautiful to me. Make it more beautiful to our leadership here and to the whole, everyone sitting here, everyone listening from home, our whole church in this time of being scattered, being distanced, being anxious. Um, make the gospel sweet, spirit, and beautiful and protect us from false doctrine which loves to blend goodness with Jesus, acts of goodness with you. Help us to separate those out so that um, we can do them in the right, proper way and uh, not succumb to worshiping the works of our hands. In Christ's name we pray, amen.